Remain standing for the gospel, the continuation of the gospel from John chapter 20. James and John have already left the tomb where we pick up the story. But Mary, Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned And said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told them all that he had said to her. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Let's pray together, please. Amidst all the fanfare, O God, banging timpani, sounding brass, may the mystery and message of resurrection its truthfulness, its hopefulness, its promise. Wash over people in this room, in churches up and down this street, all around our city and all around the globe. May resurrection power transform us from people of division to people of unity, from people of despair to people of great gladness, to people of, from people of scarcity to people of sacred abundance who recognize that in you and through you there is enough for all. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And now speak, Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been at this for quite a while, not just today, but over the last 40-some years. And over the years, I've found myself on Easter Sunday focusing less on the proofs about resurrection, finding more interest and intrigue in the details of the story. Proofs of resurrection uh, leave me cold. They, they, they don't change my heart. But the details of the story, I think they're there for a reason. The gospel writers are working hard to convey something that is beyond proof. I hope you didn't come this morning 
for proof. I hope you came instead for praise. The gospel writers speak to the breadth and the reach and the implications today of what it means to say that Jesus, in ways that we don't understand, was raised from dead to alive again. One of the details that I especially am intrigued by this week as we read again this Gospel of John is the comment that Mary Magdalene mistook Jesus for the gardener. Now, you may think that's a rather trivial detail to focus on in light of all the unanswered questions that are left by John's very scant report about what happened. But you have to agree, it is a kind of odd and unique detail for John to include. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the other three gospel writers, they don't mention anything about Jesus being mistaken for the gardener. Only John does. And only John says that the tomb in which Jesus was laid, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, was found in a garden. We've come to expect this from John. If you've been reading your Bible at all, you know that John sounds and feels and reads differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all more the same. They're on kind of the same team. They have the same team T-shirts that say synoptics written across them. For you church nerds in the room, John, he's a different cat. He writes it differently. He's a poet. And so he samples from uh, the first words of the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, words that he uses then to begin his telling of the story of Jesus. In the beginning, he says, in the beginning. That's a gutsy move for a writer to make. But he does it and he carries it off. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, says the book of Genesis. This gardener God who forms earth and plants it and populates it and scoops from the dust like a farmer the dirt and forms humanity in God's own image and creates this space. This is God's dream. The space where all are included, where there's harmony and unity, even in the vast diversity of all creation, there's a place for everything, a purpose for everything, a position for everything, and a promise for everything. John sees it. He tries to find the words to sort of put it all out there at once. And so John 1 flourishes, and then he moves to John 2, where he tells the story of Jesus going to the wedding at Cana of Galilee and turning ordinary water into wine, a sign. They're all signs of abundance. The feeding of the 5,000, sign. The woman at the well, a sign. And he doesn't just stop with signs. It's from John that we get the I am sayings of Jesus. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the true vine. I'm the resurrection and life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And then when he gets to the climax of the story, when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate and they're having this conversation, he ends the conversation on a cliffhanger. The question of Pilate's that has echoed through time, what is truth? What is truth? Why is John right this way? 
Why does he employ this sort of literary uh, device, this sort of literary sleight of hand to try to convey his message, his gospel about Jesus? And the answer, I would say, is because some things are hard to communicate. Some things don't reduce to words. Truth is bigger than words. Truth isn't contained by facts. Truth is about spirit. It's about God. And it's about your soul and my soul and our collective human consciousness. Souls don't feed on facts. Souls feed on truth. That's why Jesus taught the way he did. That's why he always told a story, a a parable. God's dream looks like that. God's dream looks like this. Uh, It's it's a pearl of great price, or it's, it's a mustard seed. That's why all four of the gospel writers tell different versions of the same story. It's not that they contradict. It is rather that they they work together, each in their own way, telling their own truth from their own vantage, from their own experience. Each one goes his own different way. And that's why, honestly, preachers on Easter, with even a smidgen of awareness, find themselves awake on Easter Eve, wondering, how do you say it? What do you say? What words do you employ? How do you keep from stuttering and stumbling over words? There is, in this story, the truth about abundance and harmony, of peace and empower, and that it, it links to today. And our everyday garden variety lives, our own fears and doubts, our own scarcity and unrest. And so they speak in this way, telling the truth. Emily Dickinson said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Tell it slant. You can't tell it direct because it's not about fact. You tell it slant. And I wonder if this is what John is doing if his sampling of the in-the-beginning uh, in words in his own prologue is a way to link Jesus, the resurrected one, to the genesis of creation and that garden of Eden. So Jesus bring, John brings the story full circle. Mary Magdalene mistakes him for a gardener. The tomb is itself in the garden. I don't know a lot about gardens, but I do know that gardeners and God use diverse elements, sun and water, dirt and seed. There's giving, there's taking, there's ebb, there's flow, there's morphing, there's merging, there's uniting, there's trusting, there's cooperating, and in the midst of it all, there's this other ingredient Let's call it God, the energy of life, who comes in the midst of it all and brings a new life, a fruit or a beauty, or a person who is born again, 
changed because of this awakening to the truth of God revealed in Jesus. I think John is saying that in the resurrected Jesus, the Garden of Eden has been restored. And think about that. In the resurrection of Jesus, the Garden of Eden is restored. The question now is, who will follow him in walking into this new way? This new Garden of Eden continues that harmony and unity and diversity where each person is valued and has a place and a purpose and a position and a promise, and they're welcomed home into that place, into that garden. Yes, We live in hellish times. We are broken. We are divided. We despair sometimes of what's going on in the world. But the resurrection of Jesus says that God, the mystery of life, is not done. God is still active and working in you and in me. And wherever Jesus is met and welcomed, he brings this life to new situations. He restores tired souls He breathes on broken relationships and broken dreams and broken promises and brings from them the great mystery of life. Peter Kreft said he came, he entered time and space and suffering. He came like a lover. He sits beside us in the lowest places of our lives like water. Are we broken? He is broken with us. Are we rejected? He was despised and rejected by others. Do we weep? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Does he descend into all our hells? Yes. In the unforgettable words of Corey ten Boom, from the depths of a Nazi death camp, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. And he raises us up. I love the legend, kind of a Christian midrash, about how the crucified Jesus spent his Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The legend says that the crucified Jesus went down into hell and set all the prisoners free. This is uh, an allusion, a reference that comes to us, I think, from the book of Jude, the next to last book of the Bible. Something that we, that people over time incorporated into what we call the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. So the legend is about that descent into hell. And it tells the story of how Jesus comes to the gates of hell and tears them off of their hinges and makes his way into the dark caverns of hell, flinging open prison doors and setting people free down through one dark hall after another, deeper and deeper into the depths of hell until he gets to the very last door. He pries it off of its hinges and looks inside, and there in the shadow, Hovering in a fetal position is none other than Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And with the nail-scarred hand, Jesus reaches out to him and pulls him close to his wounded side and takes him from that place 
to be born again. Nothing is lost. No child left behind. Resurrection. And that includes you. No matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how dead your life may feel, to believe in the resurrection is to awaken to the truth of the resurrection. That as we follow Jesus the Christ, we are rescued from our private prisons of hell, those prisons of competition and anger and self-consciousness, and we are restored to the great garden of God where we are reconciled to ourselves, to each other, to our enemies, to all of creation, and ultimately to God's own self. This was the end of my sermon at 9.30, but I'm going to continue on now because I have to tell a story that my pastor, Jim England, told at the 9.30 service. He stood here to say a few words about the offertory. And he told a story about a news program that he had seen about a man who was born colorblind from birth. He could only see black and white and shades of gray. The story reports about how his children brought him some medical sunglasses that had the capacity somehow, some way, to correct his vision in such a way that he might see color for the first time. Apparently they showed the the moment when he put the glasses on. He took them off immediately. He was so stunned by the vividness of this world that he's been living in. He tried again and again. The closing scene is of this man in his garden seeing for the first time the technicolor beauty of creation. This is the risen Christ. He comes to set you free. He comes to help you see what has always been there, that you are a beloved child of God who waits to be set free. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Beautiful, welcoming God, receive us into your good garden. And give us the grace to live with intention and joy, with generosity, and with the deep peace that you desire for all of your children. Within this room, may your resurrection power fall. May it so baptize us in hope that we are called, each one of us, in our own particular way to love and serve, to give and to trust until that day when all is gathered in and all is reconciled. Until that day, we hold to your deep and abiding promises revealed in the name of Jesus, the resurrected one. Amen.